the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. In this episode, we go across to America, Washington, D.C. to discuss the death of George Floyd, worldwide protests, Black Lives Matter and more with veteran journalist Barrington Salmon. Hi, Barrington in the USA. Welcome back to my podcast series. What's been happening in America since the death of George Floyd on May the 25th? There has been massive protests now in in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Hundreds of thousands of people have been have been on the streets. And what is different from from other protests is just the multi-ethnic, multicultural nature. A significant number of white people, which is usually not the case. And folks who are just making it very clear that they're sick and tired of police brutality, of disrespect that the police have, and just just the, the deadly nature of police black people's contacts. You know, a, a lot of times it's interesting because, I, you know, folks have been contrasting the, the behavior and the actions of police officers when heavily armed white boys go to the state capitals to protest that the lockdown, the COVID-19 lockdown, these guys are very restrained. They, not, I've not seen any of them raise a baton or, or any or a nightstick or a, a, a flashlight against against these people. And yet, whenever they whenever they um whenever they're dealing with with black with white with black people, they just they just act like they're losing their minds. I so noticed on. there was an elderly, a seventy-five-year-old American. I'm um, at the protest. 70, yep. Who was pushed over by mm-hmm. um a couple of policemen, and the the police unit has decided to resign on mass. I think fifty-seven officers from the unit yeah. have resigned. So it, it's kind of interesting yeah. when you say that white people have been involved with, in the protest as well. But it seems to me that it's now dawning on certain white people that actually police brutality affects them too or can do yes it's true a lot of them that may not have been aware of the way that police treat us they've been brutalized you keep on thinking that that something's wrong with them that they, that they don't have much sense because they know that everybody's taking pictures they know that people are using their cameras to record what's going on but they're they're shooting people with flash grenades they've been tear gassing people beating people when when the occupant decided to walk from the White House across Lafayette Park to St. John's Church. They they had mounted police officers and they fired tear gas. They claimed, and, and the attorney general and the occupant's press secretary claimed that people were throwing bottles of ice and other objects at the police, which is a lie. If you look at the videos, they weren't doing anything. They were peacefully protesting. And because they wanted to clear the space, that's what they did. This is this is different because this is this is national and this is global. People are tired. I've been interviewing parents and and others, black parents, black people, and they're just tired. They're tired of being the targets of these cops. They're tired of the arrogance. And there's something about the way that that cop killed Mr. Floyd that resonated in a way that I that I haven't seen in terms of how people react. Well, I certainly have to agree with that. Talking about Mr. Floyd, the medical examiner's office concluded 
George Floyd died due to underlying health conditions, including hypertension and yeah. sickle cell trait, and he died mm-hmm. of heart failure. Yet the private examination arranged by the family said his death was due to sustained pressure that cut off the blood to his brain. The pressure of the officers on his back made it impossible for George Floyd to breathe. What was the response to the first medical examiner's verdict? There was a great deal of anger and frustration and just a, a determination by the people who are already on the streets to continue because they said that they're going to continue until they get the justice that uh, Mr. Floyd deserves. I, but I think the, the, the state, the governor realized what was going on and he, that's why he brought in Minnesota's Attorney General Keith Ellison and he's the one that, that charged the other three officers and upped the charges against the guy that killed Mr. Floyd. There have been so many disappointments in other cases where cops have killed black people, where the grand jury hasn't returned a verdict, or juries had mistrials or found cops not guilty. Well, I think the protests have been very encouraging. But I was talking to a friend of mine earlier and Mm -hmm. we came to the conclusion that, yes, the protests are encouraging, but it's a question of maintaining the momentum because otherwise there will never be any real sustainable, lasting change. What do you think? I agree. And that's that's a conversation that that different groups organize, um, civil rights, Black Lives Matter, police reform groups. There there is a, a wide umbrella of different groups that understand that this is a moment that they need to make into a movement. And so already they're talking about what are some of the things that they, that they need to see. So, for example, the Minnesota um, Minneapolis City Council had an emergency session the other day, and they have initiated, they've, they've instituted some, some measures already, like um, chokeholds are now prohibited. And if an officer is going to fire and gas canisters, they got to get the okay from the chief. So there, there are several different things that, um, that they have as the past, and I understand that they could go into effect as early as next week. And you have other city councils, other mayors, other, other policymakers in different cities who are being forced and pressured by, by the protests and by the demands of different people to begin to, to because folks don't care if people talk. They want to see some some tangible some tangible things that come out of come out of these protests. So that's what they're working on. And even as even as we speak and even as we watch what's going on, organizers are trying to figure out what types of things need to be put in place to make this to to help move this forward and help keep keep the pressure on and keep moving towards real change after long after Mr. Floyd, you know, is, has been laid to rest. Mm. So in America, when did the protests begin to get serious in terms of size and people protesting? Mr. Floyd was killed on me Monday, May 25th. And that that night, they started burning and looting. Protests have only gotten larger. And I mean, in D.C., what's interesting is that after the occupant had um, unleashed the cops on peaceful protesters, significant numbers of D.C. residents started coming out in successive days in response to the aggression against peaceful protesters so it doesn't look like this is going going anywhere and people people are committed to being on the street and it's it's not winter it's summer and a lot of people still aren't working because of coronavirus so i suspect that we're going to be seeing this for a while until the types of changes that people demand come in place because for example in los angeles 
the city council decided to defund the police department. So the mayor had a uh, measure trying to increase the amount of money given to the police department. And the city council went ahead and reversed that and cut $150 million from the budget that they plan to use in black communities at, you know, for, for education and educational programs and a bunch of other social social issues. Last week, there were protests all over the world, including here in the UK. I mean, today, being the 6th of June, there are 16 protest schedules to happen with regards to what happened to George Floyd. Why do you mm-hmm. think the protests have yeah. spread so quickly and widely? I think, I think one of the, the thing is, is that for, for decades, black people have been telling, telling the rest of society how brutal police have been to them. The beatings, the, the torture, the murders of black men, women, and children. And most white people didn't believe them. Most other people didn't believe them because they, you know, they've been, they've been taught to believe that you got to give them some discretion in order for them to do their job. And a lot of people are into this law and order thing because there's this narrative of black people being criminals and they always assume that if the police did something, there must have been something that black people did to deserve it. And so there were lots of people, experts, analysts, and others, and even just regular folks who are like, what's happening? Because they've never seen this amount of white people at protests. They're asking, they're asking, and you know, and I mean, I'm on Facebook. I have a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multicultural cast of characters on Facebook and social media that I deal with. And I've not heard types of questions that, real sincere questions that white people are asking. How do I respond to this? How do I say the right thing? What are, what are the things that we need to be doing as white people to to be allies and to be supportive of black people? So so for me, this is the first time in my my decades of being in this country that it's that it appears that all sides people of all ethnicities and classes and everything are beginning to ask the questions and and seeking answers to the questions to bring justice and equity and fairness to black people and also to help them be protected from the vagaries and the randomness of black of of, um, of, poli- of police officers well last thursday the 5th of June, was the day of George Floyd's funeral. Trump, the following day, which would have been yesterday, while talking about the new employment numbers, Mr. Trump said, it's a great day for him, it's a great day for everybody. What has been the general reaction to that comment by Mr. Trump? Anger, disgust, widespread condemnation, and and accusations of him being callous and tone deaf. Because for, for the 11 days, 12th day now, for the 12 days since Mr. Floyd, Mr. Floyd was murdered, the occupant has not addressed systematic racism, police brutality, or any of the issues that brought people to the streets. What he's been talking about is the need for law and order, the need to dominate protesters, and for the U.S. military and for law enforcement to crush people who are protesting. So he has a different narrative, and you know, people who, who are smarter than me are saying that he's just basically appealing to his base you know, acting like he's tough, coming, you know, giving a, a tough persona and embrace and continuing to hold on to the law law enforcement narrative. But, you know, it's funny because um, on Monday, they said that I saw pictures, I saw video and pictures of the crowds trying, you know, jostling with Secret Service in front of the White House. And they said that they got really nervous and 
took him to a, to a bunker in the White House. So, and now they have nine foot fences around the White House. So basically, he's in a cage. He claims to be to be a man of the people, but he's afraid of. He's so afraid of them that um, he's got to put a nine foot fence around them to keep him away from American people. But didn't he say that he was um, inspecting the bunker? That yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> that's what he said. But yeah. I mean. He's, a, he's the type of person that every time he opens his mouth, he lies. And he's always, it's always about him. It's always about him projecting. I mean, this, there are 108,000 people who have died from coronavirus, almost 2 million people, like 1.9 million people who've been, in, been infected. And he said that he's not going to wear a mask. This is supposed to be the president of the United States. But half the time that, that he says things, he sounds like a child. And it's all about his ego. It's all about him. And he, you know, they, he has been admonished by epidemiologists and medical experts for continuing to go out, you know, to have his press conferences like in, in, the, in the Rose Garden and go into different, different companies and not wearing a mask. Crazy. How do you feel the Black Lives Matter movement and activists have dealt with the death of George Floyd? <clears throat> well, one of the things that we need to understand is that we have a much broader coalition of black organizations than just Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is an umbrella organization with a number of millennial and other activists, and they've played a critical role in first articulating the rage and the anger of black people. Because Black Lives Matter started in 2013 after a jury in Sanford, Florida, refused to indict the murderer of Trayvon Martin. And they, they have been steadfast in questioning politicians, in articulating a narrative around police brutality, around the, the callous nature in which police, they talk about the economic disparities, they talk about the fact that there are such significant health disparities, lack of access to healthcare. So they, in addition to dealing with the, the murders, the state-sanctioned murders of black men, women, and children by law enforcement, they're also talking, they're also trying to force policymakers and politicians to address the systematic inequality and injustice and racism that allows banks to redline, banks to, to charge um, black customers to, give, to, to offer them higher interest rates for residential segregation, lower quality schools. So it's, 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 I mean, if you, if you think about the effect that racism has on black people, if you're a pessimist, you would just probably just roll up in a corner and in a bar because it is daunting. And, you know, one of the things, like you have a lot of police chiefs and police union leaders who keep on trying to say that it's just a few bad apples and that it's one or two bad individuals without ever acknowledging that it's a system, an institution, a whole set of laws and policies and all these types of things that continue to oppress black people. And so one of the things that Black Lives Matter and a number of organizations do is continue to not to encourage black people generally and other people who are concerned not to follow the shiny ball, but to continue to look at this as a systemic problem that needs to be changed. Because you have you have activists who say you need to reform police departments. You have others that say the department can't be reformed. You need to get rid of it. You have others who say you need to reform prisons, the prison system. And then you have others who say abolish it completely. So it's a, a wide range of demands and policy prescriptions. And so one of the things, as, we, as I said earlier, is that you have lots of different people 
you know, political scientists and organizers and coalesce and produce demands to give to those in power and fit and pressure and force them to change. So that's where we are. Well, we had a similar situation here with the brutal murder of Stephen Lawrence back in 1993. Yeah, 1993. Yeah, and, yeah, I remember. Yeah, and the uh, McPherson report accused the police of institutional racism, another yeah, term for yeah, systematic racism. Yeah. So do you think the protests will continue in America and elsewhere? I think they will, because as, as I said, something different. You know, it's funny because I'm a guest on the Wake Up and Live show, hosted by my brethren, Sir Rockwell. And in the mornings, we talk about politics and everything else. And I, I've been telling him for a while that this is revelation time, that all of the things that people, that, that they've been hiding, all of the lies, all of the half-truths, all of the distortions that the, that the people in power have been using, all of it's been exposed. And so I honestly believe that we're in a special time, that we're in a consequential time. COVID-19 has exposed the house of cards that is the American economy, the house of cards that is American politics. And I think that this is the opportunity that the universe has given us for people who desire change to effect change. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but I think that, you know, with, with commitment and hard work and some vision and thinking out the box, I think that some things can change. So, Barrington Salmon in Washington, D.C., thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.